0: EPISODE 21. Two decades rolled by in blissful fashion. After Mrs. Waltz gently passed into whatever realm she believed awaited her, Everell and Myra presided over the boarding-house, welcoming new generations of loggers. Older members of the crew, Charlie and Freddie and the others, built homes of their own nearby and raised smart, mannerly children. On Wednesday evenings young and old gathered in the common room for Myra's philosophy seminar. At one time Myra had dreamed of being a philosopher herself. She would have been the itinerant type, living off the land and the alms of strangers and writing books about her experiences. But are we not all philosophers, whether wandering or confined? At any rate, thanks to everil's encompassing love, she had already come to terms with life in Prince. She did not bang the pot so loudly any more when she cooked. Everell was promoted to Faller and then almost immediately to Foreman when Dave retired. He was a natural leader He purchased state-of-the-art equipment. He researched and taught the men new techniques for timber management. He talked headquarters into hiring a tree planting company to replace the ones the crews had cut. The company put up signs by the highway explaining how birds thrived in second-growth forests. People seemed to appreciate that, especially the tourists. Profits soared. In the spring of 1969, Stevie disappeared. "'To Everil it was a scene reminiscent of twenty years ago. "'The men gathered around a huge old stump they were using for a table and opened their pails. "'The smell of Myra's chicken king blended with the earthen dampness of the forest. "'Where's Stevie?' someone asked. "'Taking a walk,' said Freddie, still with them after all these years. "'Said he'd be back soon.' "'He's a dreamer,' said Cyril, the new bucker. "'A wild man,' Everil agreed.' "'Sometimes we are inclined to class those who are once and a half-witted with the half-witted because we appreciate only a third part of their wit,' said Freddie, who'd been attending Myra's seminars and had become a fan of Thoreau. They ate and waited. "'Well, we'd better go and look,' Everil said. He remembered, though not with bitterness, how no one had come to look for him when he had disappeared in the woods for a short time. They walked in pairs, shouting for Stevie, They looked in and under the skidder, the crew bus, the trucks. They tramped through the forest, shouting, listening for a call or a snap of a twig. Some of the more intrepid fellows doubled over and scanned the ground for footprints, but found none they could recognize as Stevie's. His chainsaw was missing, too. His boots and climbing spikes were discovered beneath the branches of the last tree he had felled. As night descended, they collected flashlights from the trucks and fanned out in twos and threes. They walked for hours under an indifferent strip of stars. They splashed light on stumps, slash-piles, ruts from skitters. The light made negatives of everything—the forest, a backing, peeled off a Polaroid photo. To Everill it seemed that something was exposed in this peeling—a blueprint for the world's destruction. War had returned, spewing flames that seared people's flesh clean off. Any day a bomb could kill the whole planet. The crew drove back to town and delivered Stevie's boots to the sheriff, who'd been apprised over the radio and was getting up a search party of his own. Then Everill, his men, and Myra went to see Stevie's wife. Alice came to the door wearing a red shawl around her shoulders, which gave Everill a start. They sat in the living room while Everill explained how everything was going to be okay. Alice, the Quinault Indian, wrapped the shawl tighter as she listened. Sietko, she said. "'Stevie told me he heard one in the forest once, howling. "'He just wandered off,' Everill said. "'He's a dreamy sort, as you know. "'He'll turn up.' He wanted a shawl to wrap around Myra, Alice, himself, and the little girl, Alice and Stevie's daughter, peering at them around the corner. But not the red shawl. What was it doing here? Was this a joke? Divine vengeance? It couldn't be, not after all this time. Alice shook her head. They took him, she said. He was always like a child, is why. They take children. He's one of them now. He'll come back. You'll see. Myra took Alice's hand in both of hers. Everal could tell from the furrow in Myra's brow that she thought the Siatko story was crazy. It would make good fodder for the seminar when this was over, but that was all. Myra still had very strong opinions on such issues. She also did not believe that a person could simply disappear. Alice and Stevie's daughter drifted into the living room. Freddy made a bunny rabbit at her with his fingers. "'He'll turn up, I promise,' Everil said. He was wrong. Still, over the months and years that followed, he never gave up hope. In the back of his mind, Everill always believed he would find Stevie wandering barefoot in the woods with his chainsaw. He was fine, just a little hungry. He had only gotten a little turned around. Early the next morning, Everill drove his and Myra's pickup as far as he could on the logging road. He parked and hiked up a ridge, wearing a pair of binoculars around his neck and carrying a rope, harness, and climbing spikes. At the base of the tallest tree he could find, he put the spikes on, attached his harness, and kicked his way up the trunk. The top of the Douglas fir swayed gently as he leaned out, sweeping the binoculars over the forest. The air was soft and green-gray below. logging crews were making dents in the carpet. The trees shuddered as chainsaws attacked them. The firefights of the North American jungle here at least there were no bombs falling, no peasants appearing out of nowhere with machine guns to everell. this relative peace felt obscene; it had swallowed Stevie. He thought of all his men, young and old, as his sons, but Stevie especially. He still looked like he was twelve, and had never shed that absurdly trusting nature. And then there was that business years ago of yelling at God in the sky. In a sense, Everol had put him up to that, though he'd never believed the kind of being who would respond to yelling was up there. But he couldn't help thinking this had opened a gap in Stevie's universe, and Stevie had slipped through. Stevie, Everol called, as if the binoculars could amplify his voice as well as his vision." Down below it was easy to forget how close the forest was to the ocean. In all their years together, Everell and Myra had gone to the seashore a dozen times at most. They loved it there. Myra spread a blanket on the sand and gathered their two English shepherds and all their provisions inside its boundaries. "'Pretend we're on a raft,' she said as they stared out at the silver waves. But once they got home, the ocean vanished from their memories within days. Eventually some reminder, like a TV show or a postcard from a former boarder, took them by surprise, and they said to each other, "'We should go there. Why don't we ever go there?' Now a mere tip of the binoculars filled Everil's vision with water. It was red and alive with screaming men. Everil ignored their cries, or more precisely, he was encouraged by them, because what he was doing was exactly the right thing. The submarine had torpedoed a Japanese supply ship and surfaced in order to finish off the survivors. The commander had chosen Everil specifically for this task, because, unknown to Everil, he had been noted during training for his marksmanship. The unexpected recognition thrilled him, and he vowed to confirm the commander's faith bracing himself against the swells he seized the deck-mounted machine-gun and poured bullets into the water the men kept popping back up thrashing and screaming and so he moved over to the deck-gun and blew one after the other to smithereens pieces almost too small for the swarming sharks to bother with He felt bad for the fish, their confusion whipping the water into pink froth, and he tried to avoid hitting them and aimed at men only, but after a while he could not tell what was a man and what wasn't, so he kept firing until someone pulled him away and told him, "'Good job.' He said, "'Thanks.' The air tasted of salt and iron. The swells carried him up and down. The next thing he knew he was on a troop ship. Somewhere in the middle of the Pacific they pinned a medal on him. Everil vomited down through the branches. "'Then he lay back in his harness, facing the sky. "'Tears ran down his face, into his hair. "'Eventually he decided he could not live with himself, "'the self he now recognized as his. "'It is impossible to say how long he hung in the treetop "'before he came to this decision. "'But at some point he unhooked the harness and let himself fall. "'He must have fallen like a leaf to the ground. "'It must have taken a very long time, a minute, an hour. "'For he landed unhurt, or at least unable to feel any pain. "'Pain is a form of memory.' and the man once called Everell did not remember anything at all. He walked for days. He slept while he walked, not noticing any difference between states of consciousness. His path was an ever-widening pattern that took him deep into the rainforest. Moss hung from branches, which became the arms of orangutans. Crocodile heads sprouted from ferns. Streams chattered, rain chattered. The whole forest conversed urgently, even though there was nothing to talk about, no one but the shell of a man passing through. He came to the beach— Water swirled around sea stacks, dashing itself against the dumb idols. The shell man felt the roar of the surf go through him. He threw back his head and roared with it. In the distance, a woman in a red jacket had been walking along the narrow strip of sand. The roar froze her right in place. everil an oddly familiar word to the shell man, but when he tried to apply it to himself it wouldn't stick, waved to her. It seemed like the thing to do. The woman's arm rose slowly from her side. Then she screamed and ran into the trees. The shawl man looked down at his body. Every inch of him was covered with dirt and leaves. His clothes were like layers of bark. Mud had soaked through them and dried partially, and more had collected on top. He must have fallen several times, slid down a slope, but he couldn't remember. He had also jettisoned his boots and socks. His feet were caked with mud. He touched his hair and discovered a miniature forest of leaves, twigs, and needles. He seemed to remember someone having a dream like this once. But he had not been the dreamer. "'I must go home,' the shawl man thought. Home was a strange word, like Everell, but he could picture rows of windows, a passenger ship in the night. There was warmth there, and children, possibly. But the children had all drowned, hadn't they? Hadn't someone thrown them overboard as an offering to the bloody ocean? Home was not a place for the man. He could no more live there than a fish could. He heard voices. "'There! Don't get too close. Hurry up!' The woman in the red jacket had returned with a man. That man lifted his hands to his face, and a light flashed off the brim of his cowboy hat. He had taken a picture." The man and the woman whooped and laughed. "'That's something, all right,' the man said, "'but I don't know what.' The couple's laughter made the shell man smile. It appeared they had been fighting before. The shell man had brought them back together. The woman tucked the camera under her jacket, and both of them ran. A wave broke and reached the shell man at the edge of the forest. Foam circled his ankles like a cat. The shell man did not know what he was, either, although it struck him that he might be some sort of god. Whatever other gods there were had left this place."